This is Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. I was 19 years old. Um, I just arrived in Rome for my study abroad semester, and they woke us up at about probably 5 a.m., loaded us on charter buses, drove us into the city, and we arrived at the street directly opposite St. Peter's Square, and they hustled and bustled the 110 of us or so out of the out of the, the buses and, and down the street and into the square, and we stopped. And the art professor, Dr. Flushi, looked at us, and she was standing there next to Dr. Hatley and Dr. Blue and Dr. Roper, and she said, don't forget this moment. And then the theology professor, Dr. Lowry, he stepped forward and he said, because this moment is the first time that you will get to see St. Peter's Basilica. And you only ever have one first look. It was almost like they rehearsed it. Maybe they had, I don't know. And so they got us into the line to go through security. And and we went. Walked into St. Peter's Basilica. And there's something about that moment. It, it almost feels like somebody simultaneously is is punching you in the gut at the at the same time that they're telling you the greatest news you've ever heard. It's truly breathtaking. It, it shocks you. There's a moment of complete wonder and awe as you're standing in this space that, that is so colossally big. There's really no way to describe how big it is and how small you feel. That first look at St. Peter's Basilica is, is something deeply, deeply embedded into my mind. And this conversation with Liz Lev today uh, brought me right back to that first moment, brought me right back to those moments throughout the city of Rome, stumbling into a church and finding a saint, or walking into a church and looking at a Caravaggio, or having a conversation with one of my professors in Rome about one grand, beautiful thing after the other. Liz Lev is an art historian. She's a professor. She teaches and lives in Rome. She gives tours that are world-renowned for how wonderful they are. I, I tweeted after I had finished interviewing her, and so many people were sending me messages saying, oh my gosh, I met her last year. And today, Liz brings us really on a, a walking tour of the city of Rome and of art and architecture and the life of the church and, and really gives us a lesson on some of not only the great artists and some of the great pieces, but on why the study of art is so valuable and why it's critically important for Catholics to not only know the history of the art that we contemplate and that we hang in our homes or we see in our churches, but the story and the message of the buildings, the story and the message of these pieces, what it really does for our faith. Liz uh, is a delightful um, delightful lady, and I think you'll really, really enjoy this conversation, just like I think you'll enjoy all of our content with this art and architecture series. The link for week two, as well as all of the content we've created thus far, is down in the show notes, and you can sign up so that you get all those emails straight to your inbox. So without further ado, an excellent conversation with Liz Lev. Well, Liz, thanks so much for joining us on the Ave Explorer show. 
Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So you are in Rome. I can see the Roman sun streaming through the window. It's, it's gorgeous looking. Um, tell us a little bit about why you're an American in Rome and what you're doing over there and your work, your background. If I, I always ask it, if I bumped into you in an elevator and the elevator got stuck and we had 10 minutes together, what would I learn in that time? <laughs> I don't know if 10 minutes would be quite enough. <laughs> um, the, uh, I, I was, I'm from Boston and uh, I studied art history. Um, what interested me in art history, I was trying to explain this to some students the other day, what really caught my attention is how much I loved mythology. Like I loved Greek mythology and I loved biographies. And, and eventually when I discovered you could have these Greek myths and they could be uh, set to imagery. So you could have this mixing of these beautiful paintings and these interpretations done by great artists together with uh, these really, really, these really beautiful stories because mythology tells kind of a universal truth. Why do we still like the stories of, they still tell us something about ourselves. And uh, one day my parents got me a copy of Bullfinch's mythology and there it was, pictures and, 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 and stories put together. And pretty much I've been hooked ever since. In, my, in the course of my studies, I ended up doing um, Baroque, uh, Renaissance art and architecture. And in the course of my studies, I began to realize something kind of interesting. It's kind of a crude way of putting it. But um, the money went to the religious art, right? So they made, they made nice, and Botticelli did a couple mythological paintings for someone's summer villa. But when they were getting serious, Botticelli's engaging with religious art. Mm. And so, so you kind of got attracted to, it's kind of like you're off Broadway and then you want to see what does it take to get to the big <laughs> leagues. Yeah. And uh, big leagues were religious art. And so I started to pay a little bit more attention to these stories that I wasn't originally, I was like, oh, all right, lady with angel. But I became more and more interested in the nuance of how do you recount the story? How does same, same story, a hundred thousand different artists, a hundred thousand different ways of telling it. Mm. And really gradually I began to realize that uh, religious art is not only uh, profoundly beautiful and just simply deeper and, and more enriching, but it also has the extraordinary power to persuade. Mm. Tell me a little bit more about that. So it has the power to persuade someone into belief, someone into... Oh, absolutely. So I went to University of Chicago to do my undergraduate work, which is a magnificent school, but not really one that's going to be concentrated on helping you deepen your faith. Mm -hmm. From there, I went to University of Bologna to do my graduate work, which was in the famous town of Bologna, La Rosa, named such for several reasons, not excluding its communist administration. So obviously not a school that's really about, you know, let's explore our faith. But... But interestingly, while I was doing my, my work there, the, the, the philosophy behind the art department was that you had to understand the soil from whence a work of art came. So if the work of art comes from Bologna, you need to understand a little bit about the Bolognese story. But if you extend that, if the work of art comes from a Bolognese church that's run by, oh, let's say the Dominicans, it requires that you begin to understand what's the function of the work of art in the church, what are the Dominican thinking, why is the saint important? And so when I came to Rome and started to apply that to something like, say, the Sistine Chapel, really it got to the point where there was no question. There are plenty of questions about the Sistine Chapel I couldn't answer from an art historical point of view. So, you know, why is Eve the center of the ceiling? Why does Michelangelo make uh, the serpent look like a female. The plain is I couldn't answer from the art historical perspective, but when I began to look at it from the point of view of maybe Michelangelo believes this stuff, suddenly there was no question that didn't have an answer. 
And that really uh, is what persuaded me personally. It really brought me back to my faith myself. Mm-hmm. So I do know it works because it worked on me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's beautiful that the thing you were studying was then for you the, the route back to God. Do you find that that is, is true for the students that you teach and that you work with now? Um, I think, I don't know. I teach my students for a semester and it's not my job to uh, be you know, investigating the state of their faith. Right. Um, my husband's much more forward, but he teaches a theology class so he can get away with like, what do you think? And I'm like, oh, I, I don't, I'm not going to go there. I just ask them, you know, can you read and write? And um, for me, I find that I will, I do the same thing my teachers did for me. I just scatter those seeds and show them the road paths and hope they find it. But if I were to ever be so fortunate as to find out that this had been somehow instrumental in a student returning to his or her faith, I would consider that very fortunate. It's not, I think, I always think in my life, whether it's as a tour guide or uh, an author or as a teacher, it's not my place to expect to see the finished product. It's like building a cathedral, right? Mm -hmm. It's my job to make sure that the section of the cathedral that I build is solid, is true, and is built properly. But it's not my job to expect to be there at the ribbon cutting ceremony. And that's really how I approach virtually everything I do regarding art of my faith. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful image um, that I think many of us on the spiritual journey, we find ourselves at, at different moments in people's lives where we plant a seed, where we have a conversation, where we share some truth, and then we walk away. And we don't ever necessarily know. I, I, I was a teacher for five years, freshman, so I'd get to see them throughout the course of their high school career. But, it, you know, and like your husband, it was theology, so I could be a little more forward about things. But um, what are some of the main things that you introduce to your students, when, especially when they're studying in Rome? Um, I know you also do tours for, for just people that are coming to Rome for 10 days, but, but what are some of the things that you always like to highlight, not just coursework wise, but in those conversations with students when you're showing them the Sistine Chapel or you're bringing them to um, the Borghese Gardens, whatever it is that you're introducing to them, what are some of your favorite things to introduce? I think um, as far as the, the teaching and to a lesser extent tours, obviously tours, what are they, three, four hours and then you're right. done. But for the for a course of a semester, I find continuity is one of the most important things that we can demonstrate in Rome. So I can take you to a part of the Vatican Museums and show you, oh, look, here are the Christian artists making their first Christian art in 300 AD. Oh, and what do you know? This is very similar to what Michelangelo is doing 1,200 years later. So I think the idea of pulling these great artists out of their individual vacuum, sort of the individualist art history of our modern age where everybody's a a reality star, everybody's all about me. They lose the perspective of Michelangelo is standing on the shoulders of Masaccio, who is standing on the shoulders of Giotto, who is standing on it. This is a long process that it takes to create something really beautiful. And and to have um, uh, the formation, I think the other thing that's very important for people to realize is that even though we consider ourselves a highly literate society, and one of my sort of least favorite lines is when people sort of scoff or sort of, we have a wonderful word in Italian, sugigno, kind of smirk and say, <laughs> well, you know, they needed all this art because everybody was illiterate. And I'm always thinking to myself, and sometimes, unfortunately, I do think this out loud, you know, if you think you're literate, the only thing you've read in the past five years, Fifty Shades of Grey, you are severely <laughs> confused about what literacy means. And so we have a whole bunch of people who think that they're so very well read and so 
were very, you know, literate. And yet these people could not for the life of you tell you who Abraham is or Moses is, or for that matter, who Hamlet is. And so this whole common formation and, and understanding that, 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 that we at least in Western culture move forward with, we're able to dialogue and create dialogues with, it's gone. So I spend a lot of time really just building up these platforms and making you realize that the struggles that we face today are similar to the struggles that people have faced before, except people before seem to do it with a lot prettier results. Yeah, that's that's very true. Art today versus art then. There are certainly beautiful things, but maybe not packing the same punch because we are, you know, you said Fifty Shades of Grey. My thought was if they haven't read anything other than their phone, um, (laughs) you know, I I, I know my husband and I for Lent gave up Netflix after 7 p.m. And it's been fascinating. He likes audiobooks, so he'll be listening to a book and I'll be reading a book and how much different we feel the next morning because we weren't just staring at a screen for two more hours, but we were just actually trying to, and then we fall asleep earlier because it it can be tiring. Yes. Um, Have you noticed in, especially people that come to Rome, maybe for the first time, um, this is the vacation that they've always wanted to take or the pilgrimage that they've, they've longed for for years. What do you notice in people as they begin to make those connections, as they begin to, to realize, oh my gosh, like, yeah, there is this beautiful image of Peter on the boat on the way out of St. Peter's, or I believe, is that where it is? It's been a long yes, time. Yes, it's, it's the Navicella uh, Mosaic on the, yep, on the way out. Or, or when they, they step into a church and they see um, a saint just buried there, because in Rome, you can, there's, you know, there are a dime a dozen. Um, or walking into the Sistine Chapel for the first time and, you know, God forbid it's crowded and you're being shushed the whole time, but you just have that moment of wonder and awe. What do you see in people as they begin to make these connections? And, and what even happens in you? Well, I think what's, uh, what's uh, very special is the way people learn to appreciate wonder. Um, mm. We have a kind of cynicism towards wonder. There's, yes. uh, we, and we tend to only be amazed by science. Um, but the idea of feeling wonder at beauty is a very important part of this experience, I think. And that makes people grow to love Rome more. I think it's mm-hmm. part of what develops this kind of addiction to Rome. In my case, it is, uh, it is a particularly acute addiction. I can't imagine being someplace where I'm not able to uh, see the tomb of St. Peter, look at Caravaggio's you know, calling of St. Matthew, and just realize the way that these incredibly beautiful things that strike a sense of pulling you out of yourself and you stop thinking that you have all the answers that you have seen it all that you know it all and you look outside of yourself and begin to think in terms of the bigger picture which is a very very important part of I think the experience of of going someplace else yeah that pulling art does pull us out of ourselves churches do the same and we're talking about art and I imagine people listening are thinking paintings on the wall or statues in the corner but even the physical structure of St. Peter's is artistic, um, or of, of St. John Lateran, right? These, these physical buildings. Can we talk a little bit about the arc? I know art is your, your area, but architecture, of course, plays a huge role in this. Why, why the obelisk in the center? I know that's always kind of a big question that, that people ask. Why is that in the center? And then we walk through what looks like a keyhole into a massive church that's technically in the shape of a cross. Can we, can tell us a little bit about that? Take us on well, the tour. <laughs> I think I think part of what what we're what, what you realize when you when you work in um, Christian art is that uh, Christian art needs a setting. 
Yes, I mean, there are plenty of things that people put in their homes, but you know, the big, if you will, to go back to my earlier comment, the big money is in the altarpieces. You want to be famous, you're going to need to do a big, huge, fancy motion picture. And that is the, <laughs> that's the equivalent of, of putting an altarpiece, altarpiece in a place like St. Peter's. So the architecture matters a great deal because the architecture becomes the, the setting for the, the works of art. So in a certain sense, the architecture is the first part of the problem. In a church like St. John Lateran, it's particularly interesting because it is a church built, as your listeners will know, it's the first legally built Christian church in the world. And the Christians for the very first time are thinking about how to express who they worship through architecture, which is antiquity's most persuasive and important medium, think Pantheon, pyramids, temples in Greece. What do they want to say about the God they worship? How are they going to get out his singularity, his uniqueness through architecture? So it's a fascinating question. And then St. Peter's, you know, it was part of that first spate. The first St. Peter's was built only to two years complete, only two years after St. John Lateran, which was completed in 324. But then in 1500, when the Catholic, Christian Catholic civilization had now outlasted the Roman civilization, the Romans got 1250 years, the Christians are going on 1500. The Christians now are thinking, why don't we have something to show for this? So they build this exceptional church, 120 years to build St. Peter's, 120 years, 12 architects, 20 popes, and the Protestant Reformation happened while they were building it. So it's, uh, it's quite an undertaking. But the construction, the core construction of the building is an ancient Roman basilica, the Basilica of Maxentius, with a pantheon dome stuck mm -hmm. on the top, already fusing together two of Rome's greatest buildings into the ultimate reliquary. Then Michelangelo adds, he completes the dome. So we have this big soaring head and shoulders. So what is this? A pro proclamation of this man in the image and likeness of God, the head of the church re-emerging above the tomb of St. Peter's. A very, very powerful anthropomorphic imagery. And then along comes uh, Sixtus V, who's Pope from 1585 to 1590, and starts thinking, we need to bring people here. We have to guide people here. We have to make people understand why is that building so fancy? Because don't forget the Protestants have been complaining about the mm -hmm. indulgences for ages. So what do we do? We take the obelisk that for years had been kind of left off to the side of the old St. Peter's, sort of odd little curiosity from the ancient world. But at the same time, it is the object that was present when St. Peter was crucified upside down in Nero's circus after the great fire of Rome. It is the object that saw St. Peter die. So he moves the object, the obelisk, from the side of the church to the front of the church as a beacon. This thing saw the, saw the, saw the death of St. Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, your first Pope. Take a few more steps and there will be the body or the, the tomb of that first pope. And you will see standing at the altar above that tomb, the present pope. This brings us right back to the continuity question. Mm -hmm. And the same message the Christians have been proclaiming since when they built St. John Lateran way back in 324. Bernini adds these arms, that colonnade, which from above looks like a keyhole. But when you enter them, and you've got the soaring dome of Michelangelo. You've got that big colonnade. It's the arms of this church that they're still welcoming everybody. We see that to this day. We see it every Wednesday with the audience, every Sunday with the Angelus, every Easter with the Mass. That church, which is still standing there, good, bad, 
Mm-hmm. Positive times, bad times, the arms stand open. Mm. I want to come back. Like, I want to hop on a plane right now and just <laughs> run straight forward. The last time I was there in um, 2018 for the pre-synod, the, those of us that were there got to carry the palms in for Palm Sunday, and you process around the obelisk. And even just hearing you talk about it now, that's the object that saw Peter die with Francis standing in front of it. It 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 almost makes me cry to think I had no, I, I knew that because I was in Rome in 2008 and I studied those things, but I was just a college sophomore. Like you're there and you're, you're there to have fun just as much to learn, but that it's profound. How then, many of our listeners are going to be sitting in the United States of America. We don't have colonnades in our churches. Um, I go to a church that was built in the seventies and looks like it and it's home and I love it. And it's, it's where we worship, but doesn't necessarily have that same history or have that same oomph, for lack of a better term, how then can can the normal everyday Catholic who does not have access to Rome all the time or who doesn't know these things but is learning them for the first time allow the art and the architecture that we do have to continue to be an on-ramp? What can be some ways that we can enter into that tradition more deeply within our daily lives? Well, I think uh, first and foremost, we are fortunate to live in an age where these images are available um, and to spend time thinking about those images and thinking about those images, you know, when you have things like Magnificat or different ways that we look at these images and they allow us to enter into the original function of these images. So the story of a saint, but also why is this saint important? Why is the saint pertinent? I'm always kind of fascinated by stories of saints and images of saints because it's so interesting how they different centuries accentuate different aspects of saints so as to make them seem more relevant. As a matter of fact, I think one of the worst things we ever did to saints is when we um, started to just show up, put up those really lame photographs they put up. It's like, oh, come on, where's the magic? Where's the mystery? Where's the aura? I mean, just photo touch these people or Photoshop these people a bit. I mean, it's it's sort of a strange, strange way we've abandoned uh, the beauty that, you know, that, uh, that Botticelli could give a saint uh, mm-hmm. for this sort of attachment to the truth of photography. Also, I mean, even and, and bringing saints into that space, which is our sacred space. So fine. Not everybody gets to live among 360 of the most beautiful churches in the world. Although I will tell you, the irony is my local parish is probably the ugliest church in Rome. So yeah, granted, I live 10 minutes from St. Peter, so I usually bypass my, my parish and go to St. Peter's. <laughs> Just walk down. The matter is that my own parish is like, I walk in, I'm like, seriously? Is this like something? <laughs> nope. Um, but I think, I, I, I think it's good to, 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 to realize that, yes, okay, we can't all have these kinds of buildings, but that doesn't mean that we can't appreciate the beauty of the saintliness that is in those buildings. We can't, we can certainly appreciate the beauty of the liturgy. We can certainly appreciate the beauty of the presence of God among us. And we can even do little things to make that preferably not felt. We can do little things to make that more uh, 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 precious. I think maybe one of the things that would help an awful lot if we just understood that these things are precious. They're not just water and bread and oil and wine. These are the most precious things there are anywhere and to give a little bit of an extra effort fine the rest of your church it's a bunch of benches because that's all you got get concrete fine but when you get to that space Mm -hmm. make it precious Mm -hmm. it's not it's not terribly difficult a few years ago um we got a new pastor and he found his way up into the attic of our church um and i mean 
tons of art that had been donated over the years, gorgeous paintings, the, the one that he hung next to the baptismal font, which had just been sitting in a closet, essentially, was the, the, the Mary being assumed into heaven, surrounded by the angels. And then he, I was the youth minister, and he called me up and he said, hey, we have three more of these. Do you want to put one in the youth house? And so we had this gigantic, gorgeous, classic painting in the middle of a room where there's pizza and ping pong, and the... <laughs> The teens loved it. I mean, it was gore. It was beautiful. The selfies in front of it and photos taken so they could make it the background of their phone. And it was just for a brief moment, fascinating to watch. They don't, you know, they, they'd never had access to anything like that. They'd never seen anything like that because it had been donated and wasn't part of the aesthetic of what the church was going for at the time. And, and now it is. And, and um, I, my daughter's always captivated by it when we go to mass because she can see it from where we sit. And Mary is gigantic. Um, and it's fascinating to just watch how people are captivated. Now, you, you hinted a moment ago that you would go to a, the ugliest church, but what do you have a favorite spot in Rome? Not St. Peter's, not St. John Lateran, but like a favorite hidden haunt where maybe somebody's hearing this and they're planning a trip or, or they just, they want to go look it up online. I know what mine is. Mine is Santa Croce where the, um, the pieces of the wood, yeah, of the cross are, um, and it's always empty, but what, what's yours? Um, it's known that I think many people would have a little difficulty appreciating it. It's by Borromini, who's one of my favorite architects. It's called San Carlino alle Quattro Fontane. It's a white church, um, which is you know surprising for someone who does Baroque. It doesn't got the doesn't have the fancy marble, but it's a very um, elastic building. Um, Borromini was an architect who believed he was forming space, he was carving space, he was shaping space through his architecture, and uh, Borromini made. Uh, this is, um, uh, uh, Borromini made this incredibly beautiful, um, uh, it's almost like a, a space that seems like it's made out of something that stretches with you. And it's all built on kind of geometry and numbers. And as you move through that space, you, you feel a very, uh, an opportunity to stretch and move with your faith. It's a space where you can kind of, it's like, it's like a romper room. It's a really weird way of putting it, but it's like a place where you can exercise. You can try things out. You can think about things, but it always brings you back and focuses you clearly on the altar. Mm, it's beautiful. Um, how about a piece of art? Do you have a piece of art that you recommend that everybody go look up and maybe pray with as we're in? Uh, that's, <laughs> That's, that's, that's a harder hard, question. <laughs> that's the hardest. I would say right now, um, at this exact moment, the one that uh, comes to mind immediately is the one that was the favorite of uh, Philip Neri. It's by an artist named Federico Fiori. His nickname is Barocci. And uh, he is an artist who uh, lived in the late 16th century. He did a painting called The Visitation in Chiesa Nuova. And it shows Elizabeth um, in the background. She's in this kind of strange archway. Things are dark and things are murky. And then coming from the foreground are St. Joseph and Mary. Joseph's in the far foreground. It looks like he's actually physically taking the bread and the wine from the altar and bringing it up towards them. But the beautiful part of the painting is that this dark, murky, confusing background when Mary comes up and touches Elizabeth's sleeve, the contact of Mary, who's painted in these bright, beautiful reds and blues, the contact of Mary with Elizabeth begins to spread color into her world. And I think mm. it's such a beautiful way of representing that moment that John jumps for joy, that realization of the presence of the Savior, what it means for Mary to come up to these people. It's just, it's, it's a painting that I think um, in darker moments is always good to think about. 
Hmm. That was, that's beautiful. Well, Liz, I, we could talk all day long. Um, I, it, it's fascinating to hear what you're saying. Next time I'm in Rome, I'm calling you up and we're going to go get coffee. Um, all right, let's go, let's go see a museum and then we'll get coffee. All right, we'll go, yes, definitely see a museum. Um, and cause now I feel like I did not take advantage of any of the time that I've spent there and need to come back. I'll bring my husband who's never been. Um, but tell us where we can find, find more about you, find your book, uh, book you for a tour the next time we come. Where, where are all things Liz Lev? It's a one-stop shopping, elizabeth-lev.com. It's very, very, very simple. Great. Well, we'll have that in the show notes um, along with a link to your book, which is on my coffee table. And everybody that comes over always grabs it and almost steals it. And I have to tell them, no, no, that's the only <laughs> copy. You cannot take it. You may not borrow it. That is mine. Every other book gets swiped from my house, but that one's mine. Um, well, I so- hope I get to sign it next time. Yes, yes, it. for sure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. You are yes. wonderful. Thanks. There's story, there's history, there's depth, there's profound truth in the art that we contemplate in the buildings in which we worship. I think Liz really snapshotted all of that for us, for lack of a better way to put it. And I hope that you learned a lot in in listening to this conversation that we had together. You can, of course, find all of her stuff at the link that we put down in our show notes, elizabeth-lev.com. And you can find the rest of our art and architecture series over at avimariapress.com. Both the articles and the videos that we've created so far and the stuff that's coming up, just go ahead and put your email in and subscribe, and you'll have all that stuff right in your inbox the day that it becomes available. Our previous two series on Mary and mental health are also available on the website, so check those out when you get a chance. Ave is currently running a huge sale on books right now, so when you hop over to the website, you can find tons of best-selling books marked way down. So I hope you take advantage of all of that great Catholic content that is sitting there on the website ready for you. Please share this podcast and go ahead and subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. And we'd, of course, always be grateful for a rating and a review so that more folks can find the show and take advantage of what we've created. Thanks for listening.